glad to see so many people here. Good. This, uh, this, this particular topic happens to be one of my favorite topics. Uh, I love the, the study of what the Bible is because all other areas of theology are influenced by what your view of the Bible is. So I love the study of bibliology. If you look through your, your, your packet there, I wanted to start with looking at a, a psalm before we start breaking down exactly what what we're going to be uh, studying here. And let's let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this this good day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together to think on truth. Think on the great treasure that we have in your word. Pray that uh, you would be glorified this evening, that we would be encouraged and built up in our confidence in your word and uh, all that it means to us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to start with uh, Psalm 119, 9 to 16. And really, if you think of Psalm 119, you could have almost picked any one of the, the sections because... It's so focused on what the Word of God is. And I wanted to start here because one of the main goals of, of the study is, you know, not just academic information, but to direct us in worshiping of God and who God is and what God has given us in His Word. So I wanted to start with uh, this psalm that really highlights a lot of the different areas that we're going to be looking at. a lot of the different doctrines that we're going to be covering. So beginning in verse, verse 9, he says, How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. And we can stop there for now. And I... Want to want us to consider the perspective of the psalmist as we as we walk through this particular section. So he starts off with this this question: How could a young man keep his way pure? And, and young man there can uh, kind of run the range in the, the Hebrew. It can be a child all the way up to somebody to the point that they're actually called an elder. So it can be anywhere in that range. So it can be a, a rather old person or a rather young person. Um. And he says, how, do you, how can a young man keep his way pure? And he says, by keeping it according to your word. So in accordance with the word of God. Now, as we think through this, I just want to think through of different aspects that, that he hits on here. And we're only going to go through it uh, quickly here. We see right off here, he gives us the key uh, to victory over sin. Right? We might come up with all kinds of different ways to to deal with our own sin, to deal with our own uh, issues. And he says that it's by a constant uh, abiding in the word of God and what God's word says. So purity in conduct comes from how we treasure the word of God. And we'll see that as we go through the, through the, um, the Psalm here. So it's nothing, it's nothing, uh, 
It's not a magical thing that we wait for to happen. It's not some, you know, coming of the Spirit upon us. It is, we have what God's Word says. We have the directives from God, and we keep ourselves uh, in pursuit of those directives, those things that He has given us. And I think as you as you walk through this psalm, there's a there's an interesting uh, juxtaposition in that you see that there is a complete and total reliance on God, but at the same time, there is also effort on the part of the psalmist. Uh, The psalmist is not trusting in his own efforts. He's trusting in God, but he is pursuing the things of God. He's pursuing God's word. And practically speaking, to pursue God, to pursue a knowledge of God, to, to get to know God, the only practical means we have is the scriptures. And that comes through in this psalm here. If we want to know God, the only way to know God as he has revealed himself is in the scriptures. So the only way to know his thoughts or his ideas about how things should should, uh, function or how everything fits together is we we have to be locked into what God says in his word. So the first question that we could we could ask ourselves as we look at those that that first section there is, uh, do we see the necessity of the word of God? Right? The psalmist here sees the necessity. If I want to be pure, if I want to be right, if I want to be clean before God, then I must walk according to His word. In verse ten, we see that he has with all his heart, he says, I have sought you. And that that idea of heart there is with all his being, of all that he is. He has sought God. But then I love the the honesty that you have in the Psalms often. You see the struggles that people have in the Psalms. You see, I love Psalm 73. You see the struggle that he has when he looks and he sees the rich and he sees how they're prospering and he sees how the wicked are prospering and he, he gets down and then he's like, then I went to God's sanctuary. Then I went to God. Then I saw their end. Then I saw what God's plans were. And so I just, I love the honesty that we see in the, in the Psalms. And so he says, I have, with all my heart, I have sought you. I have pursued you. But then he says, do not let me stray from your commandments. So there's that, that idea of that reliance on God, right? He's, he's putting the effort in, he's pursuing, he's looking to God's word, but realizes his his weakness that he's prone to wander as as, as the, the hymn says right I, I love that part of the hymn that definitely resonates right we're, we're all prone to wander we're prone to to remove ourselves from the treasure that we have in God's word then he says um your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you? And I have the LSB in this uh, passage. You might have memorized that as my, uh, I have hidden in my heart. And I think treasured is a, is a better translation there because it's the idea of, of storing up. It's that which you're investing in. So it, the, I, the idea of treasure, I think, is better. So it's something that is treasured. It's something that is stored up. It's something that... The, the, the psalmist is saying that they're investing in, they're putting themselves into it. They are pursuing. 
And he says again here, it's so that I might not sin against you. So it is in God's word. It is treasuring God's word. It's putting God's word within us that keeps us from sin. The more we fill ourselves with God's word, the more that we have it on our, our mind, on our lips, in our thinking, the more that it controls us and directs us and guides us in doing that which is, which is pleasing to God. So he says that I might not sin against you. You can see that that treasuring is what guides him and directs him and controls him in doing what is right before God. So again, when it comes to when it comes to sin, when it comes to struggle, do we go to God first? Do we go to God's word first? You know, what do we what do we do first? Then he says, "Blessed are you, O Yahweh, teach me your statutes." And the idea of blessed there is that God is is glorious, he is to be honored, he is to be uh, the one that is praised, he is exalted. And because he is that particular exalted one, he is saying, teach me your ways. He understands the, the loftiness of God and who God is. God is most blessed. So he's saying, all right, teach me your ways. Those are the ways that I want to know. I want to know the ways of the most high, the one that is highly exalted. So do the, you know the question I've asked myself when I've read that verse is you know do I long to to hear from God? If we long to hear from God, we have the scriptures. That's where God speaks to us, and that's where He turns. He longs to hear from God. He wants to know what God has to say, and so He turns to God's <laughs> statutes, God's law, the scriptures. And then we see the the, the further effect that that the word has on this individual here, because uh, we, we don't know who wrote this psalm. It's, it's uh, synonymous. A lot of people think it was David. Uh, it's, we don't have anything that definitively tells us who it, who it was. Uh, as another side note, uh, Psalm 119 is, is kind of a, a poetic masterpiece. Right? Each section begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then each stanza does as well. So it's you know, that kind of a, a poetic type masterpiece that all focuses in on God's word. So he says this next, that the, the word of God has such an effect on him from treasuring it, from following it, from getting it into his mind. He says, with my lips, I have recounted all the judgments of your mouth. And he says, all the judgments of your, your mouth, all that God has revealed. So he can't help but talk about all that God has to say, all that God has done. Because he treasures the, the scriptures so much that he can't help but speak about what the scriptures are and what they contain. Uh, he prizes it. I often think of how, you know, if we have gone somewhere on vacation, we see something, you know, beautiful, gorgeous, that really affects us. That's what we talk about when we see people. We talk about the, the wonderful thing that we saw, whatever it may be. And are we like that with the word of God? Do we want to talk about the word of God? Have we been in the, the word of God, you know, this day so that it affects us, so that we want to talk about it? This is what I saw in God's word today. This is, this is what God communicated to me today through his word. This is what's affected me from God's word today. And so the, the psalmist, he's, he's so affected, that's what he wants to talk about. That's what's coming out of his mouth. That's what's on his lips because he prizes it and cherishes it so much. 
I think you can see the the, the same thing with uh, uh, with grandkids, right? You're with your your grandchildren, and that's who you want to talk about, right? Because you cherish them and you prize them. Are we the same way with the Word of God? Is that what we want to talk about? So it, the psalmist is talking about how it guides us, it keeps us from sin. When we treasure it in us, it controls us because that's how we're thinking. We're thinking God's thoughts. We're thinking God's way. So it keeps us from sin. And we see here that he talks about its, its great value. He says, I have rejoiced in the ways of your testimony as much as in all riches. So it's interesting that he says as much as all riches. So uh, the sum total of all the riches that he can think of compiled. The word of God is more precious than that. You know, I think through the, in the, the gospel accounts, you think through the, the individual that uh, sold everything for the pearl of great price. He understood the, the treasure that was there and it was worth dumping everything, getting rid of everything so that they could get the pearl because it was of so much more value than anything else that they had. And do we see the scriptures that way? Then he says, I will muse upon your precepts and look upon your ways. Uh, the, the idea of muse there is to meditate, to consider, to, to think through it constantly. Uh, are we running through the truths of scripture in our minds every day, uh, daily? Uh, moment by moment, are we thinking it of what God has said about a situation or what God's viewpoint is about a situation? Are we going to his word for, for wisdom when we have a difficult decision to make? Do we seek what God has to say about it? You know, that's, that's that idea of where they're just meditating on it, we're thinking about it. I'm sure you've all had the experience that if you've set out to memorize scripture, when a situation comes up or a conversation comes up, what scripture comes out of you? It's typically that which you've spent the most time in. It's that which you've meditated upon. It's that which is most readily available to you when you're thinking because you've spent that time thinking on it. And then he says, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Again, we see the, the resolve of the psalmist here. He's resolved to do these things but he's also dependent on God. He's not trusting in his own resolve or his own ways, but he's trusting in God's hand to keep him in those things. And the idea of, of forget is, is not like, you know, as we all get older, we forget things. It's not like that. It's the idea of, of not allowing it in your mind. It's the idea of not giving it place in your thinking. It's, it's purposeful. So he's saying, I, will, I purpose to be um, purposeful in keeping the word in my thinking, to not uh, give space for it to, to be removed from our thinking. And so I wanted to start with that because we can see throughout this, this particular psalm, we've, we've basically hit all the doctrines we're going to cover in this, this class. Um, the psalmist certainly sees God's word as authoritative, right? That's where he's going to go. That's how he is going to think. He certainly sees the scriptures, the Bible, as God's inspired word. He knows that it's God's communication. 
certainly sees that the scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. So he turns to the scripture in difficulty. And if you go through the, the remainder of Psalm 119, that, that comes up numerous times, the, the sufficiency of scripture, the struggles in life, uh, persecutions, all those type of things. The, the psalmist turns to the scriptures. So we see here that it's the, the Bible is God's revelation. It is the standard for living. Uh, it is an errant, right? He hits that too. He hits upon the fact that it is a truth. That's why he turns to it. He turns to it because it's true. It's that which will guide, control, direct, that which keeps from sin. Uh, it's the standard for, it's the, the standard for life and godliness. So as we go throughout this this class again, the the goal is to have it be uh, worshipful, right? Not just a- academic. It's to encourage us in the truths of what the Scripture is, to drive us to the Word of God in confidence, to you know live according to what God says in His Word. And that's the reality of what faith is, right? Faith is taking God at His Word and doing what it says. You know, it's it's pretty simple. We we like to complicate it, I think, immensely, but it's a pretty simple thing, right? Um, we'll hit it at the end, but I, I just love how James writes it. He just says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? We we like to complicate that, though. We look for the exception clauses like, oh, well, this person did that. It's, it's not there. It doesn't matter what somebody else did. It doesn't matter how we feel about it, right? Our, our feelings about it are irrelevant. It's what does God say that we are to do, and then we do it. So I just wanted to start there to, to get us thinking on the, the treasure that we have in God's Word. And that's, that's what we're going to be looking at as we progress through this study. And did we get those? Did you get those front pages there? Everybody has that front page? All right. I forgot to add that. That's basically just an overview of the different topics that we're going to cover. Um, you don't have all the notes, I'll, I'll give them as, as we get closer. So you have the, the, first, the first chunk, but you don't have... So these are all the topics that we're going we're gonna to deal with, we're going to cover. And there is somewhat of a progression in how we deal with it. We start with Revelation because that's what God's Word is, and then we're going to develop, develop through there. Also, at any time, if there's any, any questions, feel free to... Slip your hand up. It'll get a little bit more interactive after we get through the introductory section. The introductory section, kind of by definition, it's usually giving information. So it's more informational here in the beginning. And then uh, as we go through other other portions, you'll see that there's kind of spaces left because I want to look at those passages that are in there and you know spend some time making some observations making some observations of why that would fit in there, why we would develop certain theologies out of those, those particular areas. I guess as another, another side note, uh, the last time we had a class is, was hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is you know, how, we, how we go through the sentence structures, how we find the main point, how we find all of those things. Uh, when you hit a theological study, you approach it a little bit differently because sometimes you have a really good point of theology that's going to be in a prepositional phrase. 
but it speaks to what the Bible is, and it might just be in a prepositional phrase. So uh, when you hit theology, you tend to be a little bit more all over the place, picking different verses, because, you know, like like any theological thing, you can think of the, the Trinity. There's not one verse that lays out the entire Trinity. But as you go through the scriptures, you can find truths here and there and all over the place, and then you can develop that theology. So anytime you're in theology, that's that's how it's... That's how it's going to happen. And in each section that we hit, uh, there's a couple of verses that I'll put in the front that are the, really the theological anchors for how we're going to hang our thinking on each one, of the, each one of the biblical truths. So continuing on with the, the introduction, uh, the, word, the word bibliology, uh, many of you asked me what that even meant when you knew the class was coming up. You know, what is what do we even mean by that? And it's just, you can see it there. I, I added the definition in there. Uh, it's from the word biblion, which is either a book or a scroll, and uh, logia, which just means the study of. So it's, you know, we're familiar with words that end in ology. It's the study of. So we'll be looking through a study of, of what the Bible is, specifically what it teaches, what it teaches about itself, uh, what the Bible is, how we got it, and what it means to us. So those are really some of the main areas that we're going to be developing as we go throughout uh, the class. Uh, each section there, too, and any books I read and the, there was quotes I thought were helpful, I threw those in there, and we can kind of look at those and discuss those as we go through as well. And the first one there, if you're on page one, you can see there's one uh, by uh, Berkman. Uh, he was actually a professor that I had in school, and he wrote a theology book. So I have his theology book because that was the book that you're required to have in the class, the one he wrote. Uh, and so he wrote this, the importance of this study, the study of bibliology, is indicated by the Bible's being the basis of Christian belief and conduct and the special means by which God makes himself and his will known to mankind. One's belief about the Bible fashions his view of God and the Christian faith. And the next one down there is, the doctrine of scripture is absolutely fundamental and essential because it identifies the only true source for all Christian truth. Scripture repeatedly claims to be the word of God. Uh, there looks like there's, there's. I think you might have a little one there in your notes, but it's because there was a footnote that I forgot to backspace in the quote. But anyway, so it might look like an I, but it's actually a one for like a footnote. But so you can just cross that off. So among the among all the multitude of different doctrines that that we can study, and why I said that this is one of the ones that I, I find the most exciting, is because it is like those quotes say it is foundational to how we we approach any area of theology. And you'll see as we go through, there's all kinds of different views and all kinds of different things. You know, what revelation is, what inspiration is, inerrancy, and all those, you just veer off and you no longer have the gospel. So that's why I, I love this particular doctrine because if you're wrong, again, if you're wrong about what the scriptures are, if you're wrong about what they say, then you're wrong about the gospel. And if you're wrong about the gospel, you have no hope. So it's, it's a very, very important foundational doctrine. Um, our approach to this, this, these particular 
doctrines is going to be, you can see it in your notes there, it's going to be what's uh, commonly called sola scriptura. So that means the scriptures alone. So that's the approach to, to this. There's, there's all kinds of different approaches that people take. They'll take like a, a more historical approach and they'll look at kind of external evidence to the Bible to prove out, you know, things in the Bible are true. And that's, that's helpful. And we'll, we'll touch upon some of that, but we're just going to kind of glance over some of that because, you know, to me, the, the meat of, of what we want to know is what the Bible has to say. It's that sola scriptura approach. It's the, the reality that the Bible is self-authenticating. And a lot of people will say that's, that's circular reasoning to say, well, the Bible says it's the word of God. Therefore, because it's the word of God, then it's true. And I understand, you know, where they're coming from, that that sounds circular. But when the Bible is held as the absolute authority, how can you appeal to anything else other than what the scriptures have to say? So that's why I take the, the Sola Scriptura approach, the Bible alone, right? It's the ultimate authority. So it doesn't matter what some historian says. It's, it's nice evidence and it's helpful and it can encourage us, but it can't be the basis for belief in what God had to say or what God, I should rephrase it, what God is saying, because when it's in the scripture, he says it. It's current. It's the now. Yep. There's a, a bumper sticker that I think is well taken. It says, um, God said it, I believe it, now settles it. Yeah. And I heard someone say, yeah, that's all true, except you got to take out the middle section of I yeah. believe it. It doesn't matter whether you believe yeah. it or not. God said it, yep. that settles it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely true. So that's that's the approach that we'll take. And, and I, I will hit some we'll do, we'll hit some uh, historical evidence. We'll look at some of that. We'll look at some archaeological evidence. And those are all different, interesting areas of study that you can get into that help support what the scriptures say. But uh, we're going to take the sola scriptura approach, right? The Bible is self-authenticating. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Rightly divided. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that comes out and that'll come out in some of the other sections when your view of inerrancy, your view of, you know, all those type of things. So the Bible is, are absolutely authoritative. And I put that, put that in our notes and it's purposefully redundant that it's absolutely authoritative because it gives us all that we need for doctrine and practice or for life and godliness or for orthodoxy and orthopraxy, which just is a fancy way of saying doctrine and practice. So it's authoritative for all of those things, all of those areas of life. Basically, every major attack on the, the scriptures or what the scriptures are or how we understand the scriptures or how we approach the scriptures is basically going to hit on one of these major doctrines that we are going to go through in this class. Uh, one of the, the major doctrines that, you know, that basically you can see on the, on the cover page there where it shows what the sections will be. Um, and you can probably think of some, think of more. This is just the ones that I thought of. And these are the, the bullet points there under, you know, on uh, page two, most uh, false doctrines or attacks on the Bible or attacks on the scripture. It's a denial of, den denial of what the scriptures are. You know, are they the word of God? So there's the denial of that. 
there's a denial of the reliability of the scriptures. They'll hit it from some uh, historical aspect. They'll hit it from some sort of aspect of, well, you know, that it's not accurate scientifically in this point. And, you know, we'll, we'll hit some of those. We'll, we'll explain some of those. Uh, might be a denial of the historicity of it, me meaning that the events that it talks about uh, didn't happen in history uh, because they deny that the scriptures is actually, uh, when it speaks of history, it speaks uh, without error, so inerrantly. So they'll deny that. Uh, denial of the accuracy of the scriptures uh, in science, uh, denial of the authorship, and there's all kinds of ways that gets chopped up. Uh, some some critics have uh, five authors for the book of Genesis, you know, because the way that the way that it's the words are used and the way that it progresses, um, you know, they'll say Moses wrote Genesis, but he didn't write Exodus because in Genesis he likes Elohim and Exodus he likes Yahweh. So it can't be the same author, but you know, it's really, really not a valid argument. It's pretty easy to say, all right, well, in Exodus, when he reveals himself as Yahweh, so then he starts using the name that he just gave him to, that he revealed himself by, rather than, you know, going back to the other name. Yeah, Derek. That certainly happens. Also, uh, there's also a denial of the necessity of scripture, uh, trust, trust, trustworthiness, authority, the inerrancy, and uh, sufficiency. So, you know, those are all areas that that uh, commonly get attacked. That are common areas of where people would deny what the scriptures are. You know, those are the basic avenues that are usually taken and um, you probably can think of some more that's just kind of what i thought of just as i was thinking through things and i was thinking of the the first attack on the word of god so where's the first attack on the word of god it's it's in it's in, it's in your notes there so uh, but the first attack on the word of god is in genesis chapter three and we can can see that in your notes there i'll read it real quick and we can see what areas of God's word are attacked immediately. And another thing is, as we go through this, uh, keep in mind that when God audibly speaks and when it's written, it's both the word of God, right? There's not one that's, it's like, oh, God directly said this. That's a little bit more important than what the prophet wrote down. They're the same. So the word of God, so the word of God audible here to Adam that's denied by Satan would be the same as, the word of God written down and say the book of John that's that's um, denied. So there's no there's no difference there. But we see this is the first attack on the word of God. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So the, the, the tactic of denying the authority of God's word is seen there. The tactic of denying the inerrancy of God's word is there. And also an attack on the sufficiency of God's word. They're all within that, within that uh, brief section there, right? Did God really say? Did God give you enough information? Did God give you the information accurately? Is God's word the word that's supposed to be followed, right? All of those major doctrines are denied uh, right off there. That's the tactic. You know, so I put there in the, in the notes that it's authority denied, inerrancy denied, insufficiency denied. And I'm sure if we thought through it, we could, we could pick out some of, the, some of the other major things there. But those are the, the, main, the main things that we see that are attacked. Um, I also have in there a thing from Michael Kruger that I found helpful. Uh, he's, I forget what, does anybody remember who Michael Kruger's with? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So his major area of study is basically canonicity, you know, how we got the Bible, textual, textual criticism. You know, he's a, he's a scholar in all of those things. And he, this is his big area of study. And this is what he, he studies. It's like, you read his books. It's, it's interesting at the end of every chapter in his books, he has a bibliography and the bibliography is usually like 15 to 20 pages. So it's like when I first got the book and started reading, I'm like, oh man, this book is going to be tough. But then I realized at the end of every chapter, there's 15 to 20 pages of bibliography. So it wasn't as long a read as I was anticipating, you know, because there's 200 pages in the book or just references of other, you know, books that he cited. So he's a, he's a scholar and that's his main area of study. And he sums up the, the attacks on the Bible. He says it's attacked based on the Bible's origin. Uh, based on the Bible's transmission and based on the Bible's content. And so, you know, origin, who did it come from? Who wrote it? Was it written by men or was it written by God? Or, you know, how does that all work? And we'll look at that when we get into inspiration. Uh, there's a, a tax on the transmission. And we're going to look at some of that when we get into uh, canonicity and transmission. Just to to quickly... Uh, paint a picture of what that is, right? When the scriptures are written, there was no printing press or anything like that. So if you wanted a copy, it was all handwritten. Uh, handwriting the copies, there was what we call textual variants, scribal errors when they did it, and we'll we'll deal with all those. Um, it's it's not as scary as it might sound. I know that scribal errors sounds scary to people because it's like, well, wait a minute, I thought the you know the Bible was God's word. We have God's word here. We we have it. We can have confidence in that because we'll go through the scribal errors and we'll see how they all work and we can have complete confidence in what we have. Uh, statisticians have looked through all those, categorized all those, and statisticians will never say 100% just because that's their thing. So they say 99.96, 99.99. So they'll not get to 100%, but they'll say we have the word of God, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think it's, I've heard it explained like that. It's um, when we're putting together all the, you know, all the old documents, some of them are just fragments. It's just a piece, you know, maybe a few sentences, some are longer depending on how old they are. And it's like, I've heard it compared to having a, um, a puzzle. And so if you have a puzzle and you can see the, the cover of the box, 
you know how to put it together. If you don't have the, the cover of the box, you don't know what it looks like. But we have the cover and we have extra pieces, but we can still put it together. Because all those extra pieces, that's not a problem. It's when you're missing pieces, there's a problem. Then you can't put it together. But when you have extra pieces, it's easy to put together. So we have so many copies of copies of copies that we can compare. And now that we have computers, they, they put it into you know, systems and they can categorize everything and they can go through all the syntax and they can do all those things. And they can say, all right, this is the most likely reading. And the majority of readings are a variance, 75% of variance are, are basically amount to nothing. It doesn't change anything. It's really just a spelling error or words are in different positions. And, and we'll get into some of that and how, that, how, those, how those came about. Uh, the area of study is so in-depth on that that there's a name for every basic um, scribal error. And if you've ever hand-copied something, you'll relate to some of them because you've probably done it. You know, uh, transposition of words, or if you see a sentence and the next sentence below it basically says the same thing, you skip a sentence because when you look back, you see the sentence. And so it's like, but there's there's names for all those and we'll, we'll look through those. Yeah, Derek. Yep. Yep. And and just being able to follow through the, the structure of a sentence and context and all those things, all those things that help us in determining what the actual uh, original autograph, which that's what the, that's what John wrote. They call it the autograph. So the original writing was the autograph. Um, so the next portion here, I just this is mostly just kind of some introductory type facts. Um, you see that map there, if you look at that map and above that, we can go through some of that. So, you know, despite the, the reality that the Bible has been uh, attacked throughout history, I'm sure we could come up with all kinds of times that the Bible has been under attack. Uh, I threw down some, some historical events that we can think through where the Bible was attacked, that it was a man attempted to destroy it. There's one that's in uh, Jeremiah where the scroll is brought to Jehoiakim and he doesn't like what the scroll has to say. So they burn it, but it's, it's irrelevant, right? Cause it's the word of God, right? God had spoken. God had said what's going to happen. So it, it happened despite the fact that he burned the scroll and that, and they just, they just made a new one anyways. Uh, we we know throughout history that, you know, under Nero and other emperors that there was uh, great persecution and God still providentially preserved his word uh, so that we could have it today. Uh, there was an edict by Diocletian to, to burn Bibles and we still have God's word today. And we'll, we'll hit this, I think it's, this is on the next page, one second. I think it is, because I know we hit it later. Yeah, I have here too. We'll get there in a second. Uh, certainly, we know that uh, the Roman Catholic Church, at one point in time, if it wasn't the Latin Vulgate, they didn't want anything to do with it, so they got rid of, they got rid of uh, early Bibles that were in English or in other languages because they only wanted people to use the Vulgate. So they destroyed lots of Bibles. And the Vulgate was just, um, it's the Latin copy, a Latin copy of the, the Greek text. Um, did it come from the Septuagint? Latin copy of the Septuagint. 
So, so, so the Septuagint was a Greek copy of the Old Testament and it had the New Testament. So the Vulgate basically copied the copy of the, the Greek. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, communism certainly tried to destroy it, distort it. Same with fascism. Uh, we, we've seen it in our country. That it's been, the Bible's been removed from schools with separation of church and state. And I think even interesting, interestingly enough, and I remember seeing this with all the riots in, in Portland, is that they had piles of Bibles that they were burning. So it's, it's within our country as well. Uh, you, can, you can probably find it on YouTube still. That uh, was one of the things they were doing, burning Bibles. So it's, you know, there's been a history of people trying to eliminate the Bible, trying to destroy it. And, you know, I've often wondered of the folly of, the, of that. And it's kind of follows along the lines of, of the teaching of Jesus, right? They go to stone Jesus and, and he says, you know, which of the things that I've done are you going to stone me for? Right? He didn't do anything wrong. He, he helped people. He had compassion towards people. He was merciful. He told people about their sin, which is, you know, that's compassionate, right? He told them that there's a, you have a sin problem here and you have to, you have to deal with it. That's, that's compassion. Even his, even the woes to the Pharisees are full of mercy and grace because there's an opportunity to repent, right? He gives them that opportunity to repent. So if you know, you think of the scriptures and it's what, which of the teachings in the scriptures is why they want to dis- destroy it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that the, is that the one they want to destroy and get rid of? You know, which, which is it? And, it's, and it's, it's the reality that the scriptures, by what they are, demand that we heed what they say. It's because the scriptures demand our accountability. And that's what man doesn't like. They don't want to sit under the authority of what the scriptures have to say. And we can see that throughout the, even throughout the scriptures, right? Uh, God has different people in different positions at different times. And you think through the life of Moses, and even with the life of Moses, they say, we will not have this man rule over us. And they said that of Jesus, we will not let this, we will not have this man rule over us. So man's tried to destroy the Bible because the Bible calls for accountability it calls for the reality that there's a creator God that you're accountable to who gives us life and breath and all things and uh, demands that we follow what he has to say. So that, that map that I put there, I thought it was just interesting, you know, kind of along the same lines. You can see that there's areas where the Bible's uh, restricted, meaning you're not supposed to have it. You can't have it there. You got to sneak it in you could get in trouble for having a copy in places where it's there's hostility for having the bible meaning that it's probably going down the uh, the path of eventually being restricted so again for for which of the teachings you know it's because man is held accountable to god so on on page four i picked up some just i thought just some other interesting uh facts about the, the scriptures as we, as we think through them. Uh, and this is from a, a company that's called like Word Rated, and they, you can go to their website. They track all kinds of different um, statistics on the printing of different things and which books are printed and how many copies go out and how many languages and those type of things. And then uh, Wycliffe Global also has some of those stats. So you can see that 
you know, they say that there's 100 million Bibles printed every year, which, you know, that's a pretty significant amount of, amount of Bibles. Um, they say that there's uh, $6 billion currently in print, so there's $6 billion that can be accessed. Uh, 6.4 billion sold, or 6, 6.4 Bibles sold every 10 seconds. And then 115,055 Bibles gifted every day. So, you know, the only reason to, to, to even look at these things is just to get in our thinking that there's many people understand and realize how precious the reality of what the Bible is and desire to have it. And I don't have that anywhere in the in the notes here, but you can you can think through history and how many people died to get a Bible to somebody. How many people lost their lives for you know being part of printing Bibles? How many people ran from you know kings and things like that because they were printing Bibles? Because yeah, or translating Bibles, or, or yeah, translating the Bible into English, right? People were killed and. After they killed them, they dug them up and tried to do it again because they they were so angry with what they were doing. Uh, Wycliffe, I thought these were some interesting things. Is Wycliffe Global? Uh, they have some statistics on on how many languages the Bible is printed in there, and you can see that that's the estimation of how many languages are in the world currently. That's seven thousand three hundred eighty-eight languages currently in the world, and they say that there is. Languages that have the full Old Testament and New Testament, they say there's only 724. And then languages that have only the New Testament, they're saying that there's 1,617. And so there's other languages that they know of that there's works in progress. So there's uh, 1,248 Bibles being translated into languages. And so that accounts for you know, 3,589 languages that have some sort of copy, at least in part, of the Bible in their own language. And then they give some uh, some further st- statistics there. Um, there's 1,680 languages have no scripture in their own language. So that's that's what they're that's what they're saying in their statistical analysis. And of those, they know that there's 964 that the process of putting it in their own language has begun, and then they say that there's an additional 1,155 that have a Bible, but it's not in their native language, but it's in a language that they can they can work with. But I think that's just it's just an amazing thing how God has worked in the the hearts of you know. Uh, men and women and different people to go about the process of getting the scriptures to people so that they can have it in their own language, so that they can read it in their own language, so they, they have it in a language that they're, they're familiar with. Uh, just uh, an amazing thing. Uh, another just uh, quick side note that what we have in the scriptures, it's typically attributed to 40 different authors, and it spans a period of roughly 1,600 years. So from the time of writing of Moses until which was about 1445-ish, around the time of the Exodus is when Moses wrote until you have 
uh, John writing the book of Revelation, which depending on what date you pick, it's you know commonly believed that could be around 95. So you have that period of time that it was written, written through with a, with a chunk there in the middle of 400 years where there was no communication from, from God other than what they had in the Old Testament, no new communication. So in that, that time period, God worked in such a way to get his word out to people, and then he has preserved it uh, for us today. And it's amazing to think that, you know, Moses writing in 1445, roughly B.C., we have his words today that he had written down. So it's a pretty amazing thing, pretty amazing uh, preservation that God has done. And when we think about the idea of preservation it wasn't, God didn't do it via supernatural means. He did it via natural means, right? It was people writing it down. It was people making copies. Uh, it was people constantly making copies and those copies were preserved, you know, which is why a lot of the ones that they find in digs and things like that, they're, they, you know, they're, they're half gone because somebody tried to burn them and they didn't burn all the way or they're eaten by insects or bugs or somebody wrote on top of it something else. We have actually a lot of uh, new copies that they found with, you know, scanners and things like that, where somebody actually erased the Bible and they wrote other things on top of it. But because they can scan it, they can actually see the original text underneath because it's on animal skins and things like that. So there's been a lot of new um, copies that have come up in the last, you know, five, 10 years that, that have all those things. Uh, there's there's a there's a, a guy named Daniel Wallace that has a website that has a lot of those things and his 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 material is it's it's really neat what what he's able to do. Uh, he's one of the only people that is allowed in a lot of countries that have you know museums or they'll have a copy an old copy of the scriptures. He goes in there and he photographs them all, and he has like I don't, I don't even, he has like some crazy like hundred megapixel camera or something like that, so he can get really sharp clean, crisp images, and he just puts them all on his website. So you can go on his website and you can see, you know, you can see like a copy of like P52, which P52 is a big deal. It's, a, it's an old papyrus. Um, it's dated about 125 AD. It's from the, the, the Gospel of John. So um, because it's 125 AD, it's extraordinarily close to the original. And, you know, the, the, the thinking is the closer you get to the original, uh, the less likely that there's going to be, you know, scribal errors introduced and those type of things. So, you know, P52 is a pretty big deal. And as we get into canonicity, I, I put a picture of that one in there because that one's kind of the, one of the biggest deals right now because it's it's uh, so old. And it was, uh, in, it was uh, dated by like four individuals uh, separately, and they all came up with basically the same date. One of them had it a little bit earlier. They said this could have been like 95 to 100. Uh, and there's all kinds of different ways that they, you know, the pathologists can can uh, look into those things and figure that out. But, so very, very, um, very interesting stuff. And we'll hit upon some of that uh, in a little bit more detail when we get there. So, again, the, the Bible is the only true foundation that we have for, for theology, for knowing who God is, because it is where God has revealed himself. And I have a, a couple of sections here. These ones, uh, I put these in here because I wanted to make sure that I 
I, I captured what I was thinking here. It says, so the Bible bears witness of, witness of itself that it is the word of God. As such, the Bible is the authoritative communication from the creator God. From the pages of scriptures, we gain insight and understanding into God, man, sin, and salvation. One's view of the scriptures are what the, or what the scriptures contain, the reliability of the scriptures, the historicity of the scriptures, the trustworthiness of the scriptures, ultimately shapes to one degree or another all doctrines found within the pages of God's book. Uh, so, again, it's, it's a foundational thing to how we form all of our, our doctrine, how we can know who Christ is. Because if we, again, if we get what the Bible is wrong, then we don't have who Christ is, and we don't have the gospel, and there is no hope. So some of the questions that um, I'm seeking to, to answer as we go throughout this, and you'll see that the, the, the questions listed there is answer what the Bible is, and that's when we go through the topic of Revelation. To answer how can we know we have God's word, and we're going to study that when we go through canonicity. How do we deal with textual variance and alleged contradictions? We'll do a little bit of that in, in the section on canonicity. Uh, how do we get the Bible? That's under, we'll do some of that under canonicity and inspiration. Uh, who wrote the Bible? Uh, inspiration. Why should we trust the Bible? That's going to be inerrancy or inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and continuity. And continuity is basically a, by that, it's just uh, the message from the Bible in Genesis all the way through Revelation is a consistent message. Right? God is unchanging. And so his, his standards, his plan for salvation, all of those things are unchanging. And what place does the Bible have in our life? Authority and sufficiency. And before we get there, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know that the, my favorite topic within this is sufficiency because, you know, all the other topics build to sufficiency. So if the Bible is God's revelation, which it is, if the Bible is authoritative, which it is, if it's inerrant, which it is, if it's inspired by God, which it is, and it's authoritative, you know, which it is, then that means that it is sufficient. That means that we have what God wanted us to have. We have the communication that he wants, and therefore we have what we need for life and godliness. Right? We have what we need for the practice in our life. So that's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road doctrine. So it's like you can have all these other doctrines and you can be correct, but then what do you do with it? And that's why I started with that, that psalm, right? He had the doctrines right, but we see what he did with it. He treasured it. He sought after it. He wanted to get it into his mind, into his thinking, apply it, live by it, knowing that it was going to direct him in the right ways. And then uh, lastly, how can we understand the Bible? And we'll do a little section on illumination. We won't spend much time on that because, you know, typically that's a, a doctrine of the, you put under the, uh, what's called pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, perspicuity, which is a confusing word that means that the Bible's clear. <laughs> so, so fancy word to say it's clear. Yeah, an unclear word, an unclear word to say that it's clear. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, and then, so those are some of the questions that, that we'll seek to, to get answers to as we go through this particular uh, study. And then I wrote down some of the goals because, you know, if you don't set goals, then you don't, you know, if you don't aim at anything, you hit it every time. So some of the, some, some of the goals are to uh, gain confidence in the scriptures, to gain confidence in the Bible, to gain appreciation for the rich treasure we have in God's word. You know, if it is all of those things, it should be something that we treasure. It should be of great importance to us. It shouldn't be like, uh, and, I, and I can say this because I, I, I've done it, so I know that you probably have too. It, it should be something that it, we can't be like, oh, I didn't put enough time aside today to read it, or I'm too tired, or I got other things to do, right? It's, it's God's communication to us. Is there anything that's of greater importance or more relevant to our lives than what God has to say? No, no, there isn't. And so... You know, one of the goals is to, to gain a, a greater appreciation for, for what we actually have and what God has actually given to us. Uh, to gain understanding in the Bible's essential uh, place in our lives, you know, kind of along the, the same lines there. Uh, to clear up areas of misconceptions, and I think a lot of that's will hit some of that in the area of canonicity, because that's an area that... Uh, you know, when it comes to textual variants and stuff like that, it's it's can be uh, scary or daunting, but it's it's really textual variants are actually they're not a testimony to the fact that there's problems. It's a testimony to the fact that people cherished the scriptures and so they copied it in abundance. And so that's there's. The more variants, the more copies you have, the more variants you can have. Uh, the Quran doesn't have any variants because they destroyed all the different ones and they kept one. So there's no variants because they got rid of all the other ones. So you only have one, that, and it's the official one. There's a lot of variants in the New Testament because it was copied over and over and over again. And if you think in the, the early church, uh, many of those in the early church weren't, uh, you know, they... Like Paul says in Corinthians, right? They're not the rich. They're not the educated. They're not the ones that are of high reputation, right? They were common folk like us, right? Common folk. So, you know, not, they didn't all have great educations. And so, you know, um, reading and writing wasn't necessarily a strong suit for them, but they, they knew they needed it and they wanted it. And so the person that was able to do it the best, that's the person that did it. And so they continue to make copies. Uh, to gain confidence in providing answers to those that ask questions, you know, that would be one of the, one of the goals of the, the class to be able to answer some of those questions about, you know, some of, the, some of the alleged contradictions or what about, you know, variants or what about that footnote in the Bible that says this section of John isn't in earlier manuscripts, you know, those, those type of things. Um, to grow in our desire to know God through a knowledge of his word. And um, this is one I think on a lot is that practically speaking, if we have a love for God and we want to know God, we have only one practical means of doing that. And that is through a study of the scriptures. It's through reading scriptures, right? It's not through, 
you know, sitting back and, and waiting for a still small voice or anything like that. You know, it's, we have his communication to us. We have God's word. So that's where we get to know him. And if we want to know him, then we humbly submit ourselves to God's word. I love how, love how James writes it in James chapter one. He says, you know, put aside all filthiness and all that remains. Put aside all wickedness and all that remains of filthiness. And with humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So it's submission to the word of God. It's humility and coming to the word of God. That's, that's where we grow. That's where we come to know who God is when we come to his word with, with humility, recognizing that it's what we need. Uh, to encourage us to stand firm for truth. You know, again, that's grounded in what we have from God, to have confidence in it, uh, to contend earnestly for the faith. That's how Jude writes it. You know, kind of along the same lines there, but I like how Jude writes it there too, that it's contend earnestly for the faith. So you get that idea that it's, it's not it's not passive, right? Like in the beginning psalm that we looked at, right? He he had filled himself so much with the word of God that that's what he talked about. That's what he had to talk about. That's what he treasured. That's what he had. That's what was a, um, a prize. Uh, to be encouraged to bring all of our thoughts captive to the word, right? That's that's an important thing, right? It's we are bombarded constantly in our culture with wrong thinking. And the only way that we can uh, deal with that is we have to bring all of our thoughts and line them up with God's thinking. So if we think something different than what God thinks, then it's time to remove and replace, right? We remove what's there and replace it with what God has to say. Uh, Again, with with all of these things, the the idea is that rightly divided according to what it says in context. That's why we start with hermeneutics so that you, you, you get to the right place. Uh, to be equipped for every good work, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God so that we can be equipped for every good work. And then again, ultimately, the, the goal is to be encouraged to know God and worship him, to uh, dive into God's word, to get into God's word so that we can worship him for all that he has done, for all the great things that he has done, and so that we also... Uh, will know him. And, and thinking again of that, that passage in, in James, it's, it's always remarkable to me that the, the idea of, of humbling ourselves to come to God's word, right? We have to uh, be prepared when we come to the word of God. We have to be ready to receive what it says. We have to be prayerful. We have to, you know, confess and get ready before we come to receive the word of God so that uh, we're able to hear what it says. Because if we're, if we're um, sinful in our approach or lackadaisical or lazy or whatever it may be, we don't hear the word of God because we're not ready to receive it. I have two passages here um, in the last part of the notes here, and they're passages that um, I've really been thinking about a lot, and it's... I love how times, and I'm sure you've had this in your study, that there's times in, in reading through God's word where you might be reading one place and another place, and 
you read two passages together that you've never read together before or never thought about at the same time before. And they tend to jump out when that happens or it tends to really, really strike you because you've, you've thought about two truths that you haven't necessarily thought about together. So I have two here, and I, I shared this a little bit at Men's Breakfast once, but I have two truths here, two passages. Uh, the first is um, from what I call the ever-practical book of, of James. Uh, where he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And that's a, that's a passage that I, I tell myself a lot. I think of that a lot because uh, it's extraordinarily practical. It's, uh, it's full of perspicuity, right? It's not difficult to understand, right? There's nothing difficult about that passage. The difficulty is in uh, carrying it out. The difficulty is in doing what God says. Doing what God says when it is difficult. Doing what God says when, you know, sometimes we just, some, you know, we're, we're Americans, right? We like to say, I don't feel like it. It's, it's like, first of all, what, is that, what does that even mean? You know, we, we all say it, I don't feel like it, but what, is that, what does it actually mean? And then it's irrelevant how we feel about the situation. It's... God said to do it, and that's what we are to do. So I love that the practicality of that particular verse. Do what God says. Simple enough. He doesn't give any exception clauses. There's no loopholes. There's no ways around it. There's no, you know, like I, I said earlier, there's no this person did that or this person did that or you don't know my situation. Um, you just do what God says. Right, and I, I know we've we've developed the, the the context of James before, but you know these are people that are being persecuted. They've lost lands and homes, and uh, been ripped off by rich farmers, and some of them have died, and some of them are sick. And he says, "Do what God says." So they're in a difficult position, and you know that's that's what faith is that's James develops that whole idea of faith throughout the book of James and that's what faith is doing what God says to do even when it's difficult that's that's faith and you look at the Hebrews chapter 11 where it goes through all the all those individuals so many of those individuals that it mentions they did what God said and it cost them dearly uh you I I love how it 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 goes through that whole section and then it starts hitting the summary and in the summary, it's like, oh, they conquered kingdoms. They stopped the mouths of lions. They, you know, they did all these great things. They, they were sawn in two. You know, you know, you, you have a list of people that they had great victory and still live by faith. And then you have a list of people that live by faith. And from a human perspective, we wouldn't say that it was a great victory. But, you know, it was because they got to be with Christ. Um, so, you know, you, you look through that passage and that, that's, what, that's what faith is. It's taking God at his word and living by it. It's entrusting ourselves to the reality that God knows best, right? This is what he says to do and we'll do it. You know, it's like you can see the, the struggle of that in, in Peter, right? It's, he says, we've been fishing all night. I'm a fisherman. I know how to fish, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say that. That's just, I just added that in, right? He, probably thinking that. And he says, all right, you, you, you said it, so we'll do it. We'll throw out on this side of the boat. And 
you know, they have a huge catch. And he recognizes his sinfulness. He recognizes who it is that is speaking to him, the one that knows where all the fish are. Um, so we, we, we struggle in those areas of faith, and sometimes we think we know better or we got the way figured out, but we do what God has to say. And then put that together with John 14, 15, which is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And if we truly love the Lord Jesus, if we truly love the triune God, then we do what he says. We live by faith. We take him at his word. We trust what he has to say. And I think when, when we think about those things, it's, you know, it's, it's convicting. Do we do that? Do we show a pattern in our life of submission to the word of God that reveals that we have a love for Christ? You know, I think a lot of times, you know, I, I certainly don't to the, to the extent that, that I ought to. You know, certainly fall miserably short in that at times. Do we show that we love God when we, you know, get cut off or somebody's driving really slow in front of us? Because if we were to submit to what God says in his word, we would know that there's not a situation that arises in our lives that's outside of God's sovereign control. So it was fitting or suitable at this moment in time that somebody drive 30 miles an hour in front of me in a 40, right? It has to be has to be within God's sovereign plan, right? If God is sovereign over all things, if he's in control over all things, there's not a situation that arises in our lives that was a surprise or wasn't orchestrated so that we might grow. So when we really think through those things, when we apply the truths of doctrine, that apply the truths of what, God says in his word, that's faith, but that also is showing that we love God because we trust what he has to say. So again, that's, that's, the, that's the desire as we, as we go through this study is to just gain a, a greater love and desire to, to know God, and, and again, practically speaking, the only way that we can do that is through the study of his word. We have to dig into his word. We have to be into his word. You know, I think of situations where it's, you know, uh, there's a loved one that you're longing to hear from. Something might be happening, they, you know, traveling or they're having a procedure or something like that. We, we wait for that text or that call with you know, with, uh, I don't want to say with anxiety, but with longing, because we want to hear from them. We want to know that everything's okay. We want to know what the situation is. And, you know, is that how we treat God's communication to us? Do we hang on it the same way? Do we, do we, is it, we can't wait to hear what he has to say for me today when I read the word? What does God have for me today as I read the word? You know, what has he put in the word for me today that, I'm going to have an opportunity to, to live out by faith. You know, I think when we, when we start 
thinking that way, those those opportunities come up. And I, I was thinking about this even, you know, going to work today. I was thinking, all right, you know, it's very important that I that I live out my faith when, you know, we get somebody calls irritated or we can't meet their deadline and they they don't like it. So I was thinking, all right, what's what's God have in store for me today for phone calls? And so I have to be prepared to say, all right, these are likely scenarios. And what does God's word say? How do I deal with that? And so, you know, you, if we're thinking that in our mind, if we're thinking of how we're going to live out God's word, we find that those opportunities arise and we have those opportunities to do what God says. And, you know, we don't want to miss those, those opportunities that we have to show forth that we have faith to show forth the reality that we actually love God because we're going to do what he has to say. Yeah, so I did have one of those calls today. I had somebody that called and they're all mad and they didn't want to pay us and they wanted us to give money back. And and then, you know, a soft answer turns away wrath. It's our gentle, gentle answer, um, which is one of the Proverbs I think I've seen the most in my line of work. Um, uh, for those you don't know, I'm a land surveyor. So for years and years, you go outside and you're near somebody's house and they freak out because you're on their property, but their property is actually over there. They just thought it was over here. Um, so uh, I've had to I've had to exercise that quite a bit. And I, you know that phone call I had, they kind of gave me a little bit of a freak out. And by the end of the conversation, it was it was all great. And they're like, all right, let's. You guys want to finish up the job and do more work and but you know it's it's because you know like i said i had that mindset of this is the stuff that's going to happen during the day these kind of things come up and there's two ways that i can approach this i can be i can be ready and i can do what god says or you can just wing it by your emotions and then you do the wrong thing right because that's that's what we do when we when we try to take it over and we try to be in charge and we try to do things the way that we think is best it tends to be emotionally charged and it never runs the right course. Don't get to where we want to be. Well, I think that's, that's it for tonight. I don't know unless you want to start the other section. I don't, we can start it a little bit, but we can, we can call it there. And um, unless there's any, any questions, I mean, it's a lot of the questions I think we'll eventually get to them as we kind of walk through each individual section. Uh, I will provide the remaining remaining portions as we get get closer. Um, I, I printed out stuff and then I started reviewing it again and there's a bunch of typos, so I'm like, ah, I better review everything else before I hand it out, so. And it's, and so, yeah, just as a, as a side note, it's like I, I have spell check and I still make mistakes. It's like so. So I can't blame the scribes, right? They're handwriting it. <laughs> Anybody have any, any uh, other thoughts or questions or observations? Yep. 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 Yeah, we'll talk about him. And uh, even he's a technical variance. 99.7 of the can be explained. Yep. There's very irrational explanation within uh, picture criticism to account for 99.7 of them. And yep. the other 
Um, another thing, I would have, I would agree and confirm with you that our walls do look great. We saw what people look into. Um, <laughs> the Bible descriptions of the vast destitute work of iniquity that we have. Yeah. There's no, and nobody can doubt that. how the, the writer of Hebrews does that as well. He says, the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Right. That was, that was back in numbers. So it wasn't today, but he says today the spirit says, so it's the word of God is living and active. So when the spirit said it uh, in time in history, the spirit says it today. No difference. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into Bart Ehrman a little bit. Um, Bart Ehrman says, says a lot of things that are factually true, but he draws wild conclusions from them. And that's where it's very dangerous. And he's dangerous because he's a, he's a higher critic that um, can actually communicate to laymen, whereas a lot of higher critics, you know, they couldn't communicate to, you know, I, I can read them, I don't know what they're talking about. Um, so it's... You know, but he has the capacity to communicate to your average Joe, so you can understand it. Yeah. Yeah, there's the, there's an there's a possibility of putting that into a category as they hold one translation as I think that the big problem is there's there's all kinds of different people in that that camp and you can put them in different categories of how severely they hold to like a KJV only viewpoint. I think the the real problem arises is that they would say that KJV is a second inspiration. So when it was written in English. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit in the translation at that point in time, and we have no scriptural evidence of that occurring. So I think that's when one of the real, one of the big problems occurs. Yeah, and that, another just to be clear, none of the translators of the King James Version ever suggested. No, no, nope. yeah, no. never. No, nope. in fact, there's footnotes that they have that said they wish they had more. Yeah. If there was more texts, they would have. No, no, King James had. King James had eight. Today we have 5,800. Yeah. 
So they, they, they translated off eight texts and we translate off 5,800. And that's only the Greek text because there's roughly 10,000 Latin and like another 20,000 Syria Coptic. And, well, not, not just, yeah. Not saying it's that just KDB or some bold address. Yeah. Because it's talking about those people, not the book itself. Yeah, yeah. Just the people. Yeah, and we'll look at some of those things. Uh, a lot of textile variants that are easy to see in the English is when you compare, like, say, like the NASB and the King James, that's where you'll see some of that because that's because, you know, again, they're, they're using, they had eight, eight texts and one of them was fabricated basically because they didn't have all of Revelation. So they. Yeah, but he 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 fabricated it. Yeah, yeah, he he made up the he made up the Greek from the Latin, so they didn't really go back to a Greek manuscript at that point in time. So, all right. Anyways, uh, anybody have any other thoughts or questions? Hope you're uh, as excited about this as I am, because I, I I love this topic. Who had a question? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it struck me in, uh, on page one, the comment by Barakman, uh, the importance of this study is indicated by the Bible as being the basis of Christian belief and conduct and the special means by which God himself makes himself and his will known to mankind. The special means by which God himself makes himself and his will known to mankind. Mm -hmm. Perfect description of Jesus Christ. Yep. The word of God is that yeah yeah and we're going to hit that when we get into revelation that the ultimate revelation of the word of god is christ that he is the living word so he is the ultimate revelation of who god is because he is god all right well we can uh can pray and if uh some of you are sticking around if you could help uh, clean up the tables and things like that. All right, let's let's pray. Father, we do thank you just for the uh, time we have to to look into you, just some some truths about your word. To look into passages from your your word. Pray that you would impress upon our, our thinking the, the reality of the rich treasure that we have uh, from you that we're able to, to hold in our hands, to have a copy, Lord. It's To have our own copy is, is, is a fairly new thing. And it's, a, it's an amazing blessing that we have, Lord. And I pray that uh, we would take full advantage of that, that we would uh, desire to know you more, and that we would dig into your word, that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers and that we would uh, truly love you and be those that keep your commandments. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.